0: President John F. Kennedy was doing what he did best, charming his audience. In this case, it was the press. The date, March 21st, 1963.
1: May I follow that up? Senator Case has proposed that a watchdog committee be created to look after,
0: into these... Uh, to watch uh, the Congress <laughs> and the Senators? Well, that'd be fine if they... <laughs> feel that He's then asked a the question by Martin Agronsky, a famous journalist and radio and television host of the era. Gronsky asks about the prospects for a nuclear test ban treaty, something we've covered in the past.
1: Mr. President? Yes, Mr. Gronsky. Uh, Mr. President, after all the years of failure in attempting to reach a nuclear test ban agreement at Geneva, and in view of the current stalemate at the Geneva conference, do you still really have any hope of arriving at a nuclear test ban agreement?
0: President Kennedy answered the question, explaining that roadblocks make the prospects difficult, but he's hopeful. As it turns out, the president ended up signing the limited test ban treaty just months later in October. But what he said after directly answering the question is what is still remembered to this day.
1: With all of the history of war, and uh, the human race's history unfortunately has been a good deal more war than peace, with nuclear weapons distributed all through the world and uh, available, and uh, the uh, strong reluctance of any people to accept defeat, I see the possibility in the 1970s of the president of the United States... uh, having to face a world in which 15 or 20 or 25 nations may have these
0: weapons. I regard that as the greatest possible danger and hazard. At the time of the press conference, nuclear weapons had existed for less than two decades. Four countries had them—the United States, Soviet Union, Great Britain, and France. President Kennedy wasn't alone in his fears. It was conceivable that dozens of countries could get nuclear weapons in the coming years. And if that happened, the risk of global nuclear war, planetary annihilation— only increased. But thankfully, it never happened. Today, there are nine countries with nuclear weapons, not 25, as President Kennedy feared. So what happened? Well, there are a number of factors, but a big one is something you may have never heard of.
1: We have come here today to the East Room of the White House to sign a treaty which limits the spread of nuclear weapons.
0: That's President Lyndon Johnson, President Kennedy's successor in 1968 announcing the U.S. signing of the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Let's just call it the Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT.
1: More than 55 nations are here in Washington this morning to commit their governments to this treaty. Their representatives are also signing today in Moscow and London. We hope and expect that virtually all of the nations will move in the weeks and months ahead to accept this treaty, which was commended to the world by the overwhelming majority of the members of the United Nations General Assembly.
0: The NPT is widely considered one of the most effective and influential international treaties in history. And as the treaty celebrates its 50th signing anniversary this year, we think it's a good idea to take a deeper dive. What exactly does the treaty do? How did it come together? Why is it important that it continues? Answers to all of those questions and more are coming up. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Today, we're talking about the Nonproliferation Treaty, which 190 countries are party to, Theses have been written about this treaty, so there's a lot to talk about. But, as always, we'll be brief. And thankfully, I was fortunate enough to speak to two former ambassadors who just happened to be experts on it. You'll hear from them in a second. First, let's answer the most important question. What exactly is the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and what does it do? The NPT aims to limit the spread of nuclear weapons around the globe through three main pillars that mutually reinforce one another, And are interrelated. The first is nonproliferation, which basically means preventing any countries that don't currently have nuclear weapons from getting them. Second is the peaceful use, and I stress those words, of nuclear energy. And finally, disarmament, which means the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons. Let's start with the first one, nonproliferation. The treaty specifically distinguishes between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states. The treaty defines a nuclear weapon state as a country that manufactured and exploded a nuclear weapon prior to January 1st, 1967. So that means five countries. The United States, the Soviet Union, now Russia, the United Kingdom, France, and China. They're also, you may have noticed, the only five countries that have permanent membership on the United Nations Security Council. You're probably asking, what about the others I didn't mention? Yes, there are four other countries that possess nuclear weapons today—India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. None are parties to the treaty, though North Korea once was, but withdrew in 2003, just a few years before the country's first nuclear test. If any of those countries joined, they'd have to join as a non-nuclear weapon state. I think you can see the problem. In the nuke world, we go to painstaking lengths to avoid calling any of those four countries nuclear weapon states, and that's because under the NPT, they aren't. Instead, we say they're countries that possess nuclear weapons, or some other synonymous phrase. So, with all of that information, back to Pillar 1, nonproliferation. Under the treaty, nuclear weapon states are prohibited from transferring nuclear weapons to any other country. Nuclear weapon states are also prohibited from assisting any non-nuclear weapon states, In the manufacture or acquisition of nuclear weapons non-nuclear weapon states that are party to the treaty on the other hand pledge not to develop or acquire nuclear weapons and those non-nuclear weapon states also have to accept what are known as safeguards from the international atomic energy agency or iaea basically that means they have to accept inspections and other mechanisms that ensure they aren't secretly developing nuclear weapons okay on to pillar two The peaceful use of nuclear energy. Under the treaty, all parties have the right to develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. We often like to say that a nuclear energy program is a starter kit for a nuclear weapons program. We say that because both require infrastructure to create fuel, typically enriched uranium or a specific type of plutonium, that can undergo fission or a chain reaction that creates a lot of energy. For a nuclear power plant, that means a lot of energy to create large amounts of electricity.
1: The power of the atom, greatest source of energy man has ever discovered, is now serving in many ways, from atomic submarines and ships, to nuclear fuel generation of electric power.
0: For a nuclear weapon, that means a lot of energy for a massive and absolutely devastating explosion. So, those safeguards I mentioned before, Here's another reason why they're important. They can help ensure that nuclear energy programs are only for energy. And then there's Pillar 3, disarmament. Article 6 of the NPT broadly, very broadly, commits each party, including nuclear weapon states, to work toward a world without nuclear weapons. Specifically, it calls for countries, quote, to pursue negotiations in good faith on effective measures relating to cessation of the nuclear arms race at an early date, and to nuclear disarmament. Sound like some extremely diplomatic language to you? That's because it is. Literally. The section was a compromise.
2: I believe it was Mexico that came up with this specific language, uh, at least in part, of what makes up Article 6.
0: That's Ambassador Laura Kennedy, who had an extensive and impressive diplomatic career. She was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, U.S. Ambassador to Turkmenistan, and the U.S. Permanent Representative to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva, Switzerland. She's also on our Zillard Advisory Board, named after our founder, scientist Dr. Leo Zillard. And of course, she's absolutely right. Mexico did come up with the language committing nuclear weapon states, at least softly, to disarm.
2: From the very beginning, when the treaty was first negotiated, there was the huge tension between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states. From the negotiation on through these 50 years... And indeed, if you look at Article 6, the language is very vague because the nuclear weapon states certainly didn't want to be pinned down on timelines and so on.
0: Article 6 is known as part of the so-called grand bargain of the NPT. There's no timetable, but there's a commitment nonetheless. And while disarmament clearly hasn't happened yet, there are still about 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world, we've come a long way.
2: I myself have many times cited the figure of 85% reductions from those heights because I think that is real disarmament and should not be discounted. But the fact remains, of course, there are huge arsenals uh, still remaining. And indeed, we are in a period of increased tension.
0: That 85% number is based on the U.S. Cold War peak of, believe it or not, more than 30,000 nuclear weapons. Today, we have about 4,000 in the active stockpile. At one point during the Cold War, there were nearly 70,000 nuclear weapons across the globe. Today, it's under 15,000. That's about an 80% reduction. Some say that's a demonstrable gain toward disarmament. Others feel it's not enough, and nuclear weapon states need to do more. And that tension isn't going away anytime soon.
1: While the US and the Russian Federation have reduced their existing nuclear stockpiles quite dramatically, Um, ever since the the end of the Cold War, the fact that there are thousands of nuclear weapons has catalyzed a movement of states concerned about the humanitarian consequences of any nuclear weapons use, and this has led a large number uh, of states in the international community to negotiate and conclude a treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, the BAN Treaty, for short.
0: That's Ambassador Susan Burke, who also had an extensive and impressive diplomatic career. She was the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for Nonproliferation, the Deputy Coordinator for Homeland Security in the State Department's Bureau of Counterterrorism, and the Special Representative of the President for Nuclear Nonproliferation during the Obama administration. In that role, she specifically worked with other countries to strengthen the NPT and the overall international nonproliferation regime. And you guessed it, she's also on our Zillard Advisory Board. The ban treaty she's referring to is officially called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the TPNW. It was adopted by the United Nations in 2017, but it won't be considered official until 50 countries ratify it. Ambassador Kennedy explains how Article 6, the disarmament article of the treaty, actually played the foundational role here.
2: There is reference to specifically a treaty on general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. So, obviously, the non-nuclear weapon states have every reason after 50 years to say, where's the beef? And, indeed, the treaty on the prohibition on um, nuclear weapons explicitly now leapfrogs forward and says, we want it now.
0: We're not going to focus on the ongoing debate over whether the ban treaty is a good idea or not. But what we will say is this. At least right now, it won't have any practical effect. None of the nine countries with nuclear weapons participated in the negotiations, and there's little, if any, prospect that they will join. In fact, the United States, France, and the United Kingdom issued a joint statement saying, quote, we do not intend to sign, ratify, or ever become party to it. Here's what the former British ambassador to the United Nations, Matthew Rycroft, said.
2: The British government firmly believes that the best way to achieve the goal of global nuclear disarmament is through gradual, multilateral disarmament negotiated using a step-by-step approach and within existing international
0: frameworks. By frameworks, he of course means the NPT. And while disagreements will continue between supporters and opponents of the Ban Treaty, one thing most can agree upon is that the NPT, as an indefinite agreement should at least continue to serve as the foundation for non-proliferation going forward. That may seem like an obvious point to make, but originally the treaty was actually temporary. Article 10, however, called for a conference to determine whether it should continue in perpetuity 25 years after the NPT entered into force. It entered into force in 1970, two years after it was open for signature. So 25 years later was 1995. The conference happened, and it was a big deal.
1: So in 95, they were to meet to make a decision that had been laid out in the treaty itself, whether to extend the treaty indefinitely to make it permanent, or whether to extend it for fixed period or periods. It was a long, tough negotiation. There were many other pieces of it that led to that decision, but that was the outcome. And by extending the treaty indefinitely, by making it permanent, the parties were really signaling their support for the treaty as a permanent feature of the international nuclear nonproliferation architecture. And a permanent treaty, a permanent NPT, really represents an, the international norm of nuclear nonproliferation grounded in a legal framework, and it provides a durable, reliable foundation for both further nuclear disarmament measures. States are obviously going to be reluctant to give up nuclear weapons if they are facing additional nuclear armed states. And it's also a firm foundation for cooperation to share the peaceful benefits of nuclear energy. Supplier states and other states are going to be reluctant to engage in nuclear cooperation with other parties or other states if they are not confident that the nonproliferation regime is reliable.
0: To commemorate the 50th anniversary of the signing of the NPT, we held an event on Capitol Hill. Three sitting Democratic senators came. A former Republican senator spoke as well. In total, we had more than 100 attendees. Ambassadors Burke and Kennedy, who you heard from earlier, joined Dr. Christopher Ford, the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, for a panel discussion on the future of the treaty. We were grateful to have Dr. Ford on the panel, since it demonstrates that the NPT has clear support from both sides of the political aisle. While discussing the current and upcoming challenges to the treaty, the panelists focus on the upcoming 2020 NPT Review Conference, or, as it is known, the REVCON. Every five years, parties to the NPT come together to review the treaty and discuss next steps. Based on current policies, it doesn't seem like the United States will have much to bring to the table with regard to its disarmament obligations. The Trump administration is pushing ahead on fully modernizing our current arsenal and pursuing new nuclear capabilities. Of course, other nuclear weapon states are also modernizing and or expanding their arsenals, too. Long story short, non-nuclear weapon states won't be pleased. That said, there are simple and logical things the United States could do to demonstrate its commitment to the NPT. We and the Russians can extend the New START nuclear agreement, for example, and take more steps to reduce nuclear tensions despite difficult issues elsewhere. For its part, the United States can also finish some overdue NPT-related business. The NPT actually supports regional treaties that ban nuclear weapons in their respective territories. These are known as nuclear weapon-free zones, and there are five of them in existence today, covering, believe it or not, the entire Southern Hemisphere and Central Asia. Each of those five regional nuclear weapon-free zones has a legally binding protocol, which the five nuclear weapon states under the NPT can join. The protocol requires that nuclear weapon states rephrase from using or threatening to use nuclear weapons against the nations within the zone. Seems fair, right? A country can double down on its commitment to never go nuclear, and in return, it can get a guarantee that it won't be nuked. Unfortunately, the United States has only ratified the protocol to one of these zones, the one that covers Latin America and the Caribbean. Three more protocols covering Africa, the South Pacific, and Central Asia are sitting before the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee right now. And since the protocols are in line with the administration's policies, there's no reason why the Senate cannot go ahead and provide its advice and consent to their ratification. Now. Ratifying these protocols is a no-brainer. The vast majority of nuclear experts agree that it's a good idea. Let's hope the Senate at least takes it into consideration in the months ahead. No matter which side of the political aisle you might find yourself The NPT is critically important for American and global security, and we should do everything we can to support it. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash Arms Control Center. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.